Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome to AMDA on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series family. Well, 2022 have begun with some challenges. There are some exciting things on the horizon. I am very pleased to announce that geriatrician, certified medical director, society board member, Florida state chapter leader, and a familiar voice for those of you who tune into Journal Club, Dr. Diane Saunders Cepeda, will be taking over as host for AMDA on the go as of Moments from now, uh, I am very, very pleased, uh, and I wish uh, Diane uh, and uh, all of her future guests much success, and I know that she is going to make AMDA on the go a continued success for the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Uh, Dr. Saunders Cepeda, uh, take it away. Thank you, Wayne, and thank you for everything that you have provided to us over the past few years. Uh, very big shoes to fill and I, uh, I look forward to doing it. So I do thank you. Today, I wanna talk with you about the endemic and how post-acute long-term care needs to become prepared and tackle the, the challenges, not only that we're seeing today, but the challenges of our future state. To do this, I've invited a veteran of the podcast series, Amber on the Go podcast veteran, Swati Gar, who is the chair of the Affection Advisory Committee with the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care, formerly AMDA. She is a geriatrician in Gainesville, Georgia, and medical director at the Northwest Georgia Health System. So welcome, Swati. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Diane. Yes, so Swati, you know, I listened to a wonderful grand rounds that you gave earlier this month, where you and um, several of the, the panelists spoke about where we are currently with Omicron and how we are um, operating in our facilities. And it made me think of what do we need to do to evolve to endure COVID as it becomes in this endemic state. Uh, I will tell you that as I started hearing that word um, over uh, the whole month of December, I was like, are you kidding me? We're not there yet. We're not ready. <laughs> there's, there's so much that we need to do to figure out how to deal with this variant. But I, I'm just curious, you know, what, what did we need to do to transform the lessons that we have um, that have been forced upon us during um, the height of this pandemic and as we're going through yet another surge and another variant, how do we transform those lessons into action plans? 
Thank you. That's a great question. And I hope I can answer it um, to your satisfaction. Uh, I think um, while we are still in the throes of um, Omicron, as we have been uh, a few months back and, you know, with Delta and um, even a year back uh, when we had no idea what was going to hit us, uh, well, two years back actually now, um, uh, we um, started formulating, I think, a, a, a strategy for, you know, how we are going to take care of another variant coming in, another variant coming in. And I think <clears throat> one of the take home messages for me, if we look at it from a um, thousand feet uh, view is we tend to start and stop and start and stop. However, the formula for success remains the same. And I think what we can do going forward is um, being our response being proactive. What we know about ourselves as long-term care, um, you know, I guess uh, practitioners um, um, and and staff is that we do have the capability to respond. Uh, I think as we talk about endemic, and I. Uh, I'm not sure if this is going to become endemic or is there going to be another uh, variant that is going to come through. Um, however, what we can do is make our response endemic, right? Our, you know, the way that we imagine preparedness, uh, take that forward as a DNA, you know, into the way that we operate as facilities. And some of the concrete examples that I can think of right now is, you know, infection control perspective. There are so many lessons that we have learned, uh, you know, uh, month over month when we have had the surges of the virus that there's a same basic formula, that multi-layered approach to being aware of what is happening in the community and then creating that barrier of, you know, creating these barriers so that the virus does not come or does not, you know, just infiltrate your nursing home uh, has, has the same kind of, um, almost like same kind of cadence to it. So we can actually utilize it and not just for, I would say, not just for, um, uh, COVID, but take that for other respiratory viral illnesses as well. So, you know, some of those lessons we can take forward and just make it ours, you know, and then be better prepared. So I, I like how um, that the thought has to change that we should always be thinking or preparing ourselves to to make whatever's happening outside of our buildings, we are always in, in preparation for endemic um, preparations. I like that. Would you say that that is the definition of new normal for um, post-acute long-term care facilities? No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, whether this is going to become endemic or not is a you know, million dollar question. I think nobody is prepared to answer right now. However, um, you know, 
it is it is important, you know, one of the things that I have started doing is looking back at how did we respond to something like flu outbreak? How did we respond to RSV outbreak? And, you know, I would have to say, um, you know, if your response was similar to what you're doing right now for COVID, more power to you. You were, you were a great facility and your response was great. But I have learned a lot of lessons and our facility has learned a lot of lessons that we are now applying to, you know, flu, RSV, and multiple other illnesses that we are seeing right now, in addition to COVID, like parainfluenza, metanumavirus, you know, we are seeing all kinds of viruses coming up, and we are able to take the same exact formula that we are applying for COVID to these and are able to see that we are not, you know, transmitting them in the facility the way that we were um, we were doing it before. So it's been, um, so yes, this is going to be the new normal. And actually our new normal could be better than what our old past was even prior oh, yeah. to COVID. Yes, especially if we are, um, we're adopting that new normal for all pathogens as you suggested. I, I think that only makes sense. I, I've been in facilities where they've had outbreaks of so many different um, things in addition to what we're experiencing with the pandemic. And, you know, I think that the methodology of locking down a unit and doing those things that now becomes commonplace because we've done it so many times um, over the past two years, that has to change. That has to change. So I'm curious, you said your, your building has done these things. Can you go into more of those models that you've adopted and that we may need to adopt in our, in our facilities across the country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can uh, go into a few strategies that we have, you know, adopted. One is, you know, like COVID, being very aware of what is going on in your community, because what is in your community is going to come into your building. So, you know, every so often being aware, what is your, you know, going to the CDC website and looking at your community prevalence of not just COVID, but also flu, right? Because that is going to change um, what tests you're going to order, right? Um, Because, uh, so for example, right now we are in the mid- middle of uh, Omicron surge in the community. You know, our community has 50%, almost a 50% rate of uh, test positivity. And I'm sure that other places in the country are seeing similar. But, you know, what we are also seeing, you know, if you go same on the CDC website and look at the flu prevalence in your community, you're going to find out where flu is and our, you know, flu cases are going up. So, Uh, you know, our staff knows now, you know, our strategy is, well, look for Omicron, but if somebody is having this respiratory illness and you cannot, you know, after repeat testing, get a positive for, you know, a PCR, then, you know, we, you do a rapid, but then you send a flu RSV and, um, and COVID test, you know, because you want to pick up on the flu as well, and you want to treat that as well. So that's a small example of, you know, really being aware that your nursing home is within a community and what happens in the community is going to come in. All you can do is mitigate it really well. Uh, So that is one thing, one strategy that we have. The other strategy is, you know, staff surveillance. You know, we have been doing surveillance for COVID for so long. 
we never did, you know, a proper surveillance program, you know, which which is like twice a day, go and check these very, you know, you want to check the respiratory rate, you want to check for symptoms, obviously, and you want to check their um, uh, oxygen saturations. Um, and you don't need to do a full comprehensive assessment, you do a very directed you know, assessment for surveillance of, uh, you know, respiratory disease. And that is something that, you know, staff has been capable of doing. Uh, that is something that we know that we can do. Isolating, cohorting, something that you said, lock down uh, the unit. Basically, you find a respiratory illness, the staff now knows that, you know, even before calling the doctor, they are making sure that they are isolating that patient. They are, um, uh, prevention of transmission has become such an ingrained thing for the staff. And I think that is something that we want to nurture and continue. Um, and then, um, you know, deciding what the appropriate test is. If your flu RSV uh, COVID is negative, then is there a value if you have, you know, more than a couple cases that are in a geographical area in the building that you want to look for something else and do a bigger viral panel. But also, learning to actually do surveillance and then uh, putting a building map and putting those people in the building map because you know as you very well know uh, that if somebody calls you Dr. Sanders I have one person who tested positive and you know a day later or the same day another person tested positive unless you know exactly where they are you can't make that correlation so using all these strategies that have been present, but that have become such a second nature for us, uh, have been so helpful. Cohorting, um, PPE, enhanced PPE. I remember that, you know, I have had conversations with CDC where I'm like, it's going to be really difficult for the staff to do enhanced PPE. And then, you know, of course, uh, the force of nature said, ha ha, you know, <laughs> so yeah. it is the every day now. Yes. It is every day now. And we have become capable of, you know, responding that way. So uh, think, those are some of the strategies. No, I think, I mean, that is wonderful. I think we've, um, we've all learned from uh, many of the infection control policies you've implemented and, and endorsed um, through the infection advisory committee. I'm, I'm curious, what do we do though? Because you go to one facility, you've gone to one facility. You know, I've, I've gone to the facility that may be considered the posh place, the place where everyone wants to be. And you see the beautiful chandeliers and it is gorgeous. Everybody has a private room. And then I've gone to other um, facilities where there are still three to four people in a room. And um, it looks like the building was built back in the 1950s. How do we deal with this outdated infrastructure if we're going to always be ready to, to tackle um, you know, not only COVID, but any other respiratory illness where, where we're seeing we have such problems with ventilation or just, you know, you're in Georgia, I sit in Florida, there are so many other pathogens that, that can become a problem in these older buildings. So what do we need to do with our physical infrastructure, the facilities, how, how are we tackling that? Yeah, I think you bring up a very good point. I mean, you know, we have seen those challenges. And I think everyone who has had more than, you know, one or even two beds in a room has faced that challenge of what do we do now? 
you know. Uh, so how do you, um, you know, how do you place patients into in, in these four bed units? You know, it and it's not just COVID. It is, like you said, every other respiratory problem. But I would also say that now the consideration is who is more like, you know, so, so, you know, if even if you consider the MDROs, for example, you know, it's again, expanding into other areas, you know, MDROs, ESBL, CPCREs, you know, Candida Auris, um, it's going to be really difficult to manage patients and, you know, create proper infection control barriers between patients if you have a four bedroom. So that is, you know, that is something that we have realized and acknowledged that that is a real problem. So certainly, you know, patient placement is an important thing. Um, and uh, and the other the other important thing is also what we have realized, even you know in in COVID and learning from COVID is patient placements, if they are vulnerable, you know, for example, you know, your dialysis patients, how do you place them? You do you know you so, um, those strategies are new strategies that have developed, you know, throughout uh, or have facilities have uh, adopted them better as you know we have learned more from COVID. Um, so certainly there is that. And then uh, you know you talk about these older buildings. I think it's going to be a challenge. You know, uh, turning older buildings into functional buildings means more money. <laughs> you know, so yes, certainly more money that we do not have. <laughs> yes. Yes. So certainly that's a challenge, but I think, you know, there's a great, you know, if you go on CDC again, um, there is a great um, page about, you know, respiratory illnesses and how do you optimize your building, even an older building, how do you optimize it to make sure that you have the least, you know, transmission potential? And that is something that I would actually say to every uh, one who is listening is, um, you know, I didn't think that there is much to be done on ventilation perspective, but there is truly a lot that can be done. It is important for facilities to go and make sure that their HVAC filters are, uh, their HEPA filters are well fitting, because if the air is able to go around, then what's the point, you know? And, uh, you know, there is that increase in air filtration um, potential. Uh, there is also that, you know, even if you're like going into assisted living places where people have the, you know, room controls in their room, is small things like keeping your fan on, on rather than auto is, is an important thing. It circulates the air better. So I know that we are challenged because we can't really open windows in a lot of facilities and can't leave the doors open. But these are some things that we can do. And, you know, just one of the things when I was reading about it is I was thinking about how, uh, you know, there are those studies that have come out about airplanes, right? Transmission in airplanes is much lower than what we think or we would think sitting in an enclosed space for a prolonged period of time would be. And one of the reasons is that that air keeps recirculating. So taking that example in a facility where you can't open it to external, is uh, is a good is a good kind of simile to um, to uh, revamping your uh, or even enhancing your circulation. Oh, that that is um, that is a good point, and I read a couple of those studies as well about the airplanes. 
especially before I was about to fly, I think um, it is really good information that we could bring into, um, into the way we're thinking about how do we operationalize proper ventilation in our long-term, post-acute long-term care facilities. The one thing though that worries me, and I would love to get your insights around the, our chronic staffing challenges, because it feels like it's beyond a crisis level. And we had challenges when I, when, if you just plug that into Google, anyone who's listening, you can, you'll find articles from um, before 2000 talking about staffing challenges in post-acute long-term care. Now we're here um, in a place that we never thought we were going to be in. And how do we plan for, uh, for, for, all of these staffing channel challenges, what do we need to do to not only overcome it, but to make sure that we don't see this again? <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm, that's one of those things that keep me up at night, trying to understand mm -hmm. and figure it out. Yeah, that's, uh, oh boy, is that a loaded <laughs> question or what? You know, and, and I will, I will try to modulate my response because I feel, I feel very strongly about it. I mean, I think uh, any, um, um, clinician or anybody who gives care in long-term care, provides care in long-term care, knows that care is not just given by an individual. It is care is given by the whole team. And every member of the team is important. And, you know, as, as much as we have talked about infection control and the value of infection control in, um, and, and how we are learning so many things through the COVID pandemic, I would say that is the one very important lesson that we, I have, and we all should learn is that it takes the whole team to take or to, to provide care to that individual resident who we have in, in the facility. And, um, and staffing shortages, we have seen it all around. I mean, right now, every facility probably across the country is in crisis mode because of very, very high staff rates of infection. Um, and, and, you know, we are making do. Facilities are making do. They are having to bring people in who have COVID, you know, and providing them with that high uh, grade N95 masks and face shields and uh, telling them back to go to work. But I would say that, um, you know, like we are learning these infection control practices from COVID and kind of looking back and saying, hmm, I wonder why I didn't do this before, you know, for flu. Similarly, we look at these staffing shortages and we look at the staff around us who has helped, you know, provide care to our patients and you turn around and you look at the pre-pandemic um, state of staffing shortages that we were going through. Uh, and we quickly realized that it is not just about, oh, the staff is less because they have COVID or, uh, you know, or the needs are more um, or the hospitals are full. Um, it is a bigger problem. And I think it needs a bigger, bigger view. And one of the most important things that I have learned through the pandemic is empathy and empathy with the staff and empathy with that CNA who has the highest number of hours that they're spending with our residents 
and who have one of the highest rates of mortality in, um, in uh, you know, during the COVID time from COVID. So, uh, you know, certainly empathy, but then, you know, culture of the building and how you are making staff feel valued. Um, and then- and Culture is so important. Like you could go into a facility, you could feel that, that the culture of this facility is not connected. There, there are um, people who will not tell you, be transparent and tell you what it really is happening, but you feel it as you're walking through the door. Uh, mm -hmm. I, it is so vitally important. It is so vitally important. You know, I love to go into a building where literally as I arrive, I have like three CNAs come to me and say, hey, Dr. Gar, this, hey, Dr. Gar, that, you know, this person is having this, this person is having that. That is the culture that we want where people are completely transparent. They want to come and talk to you because that is where we, we enhance care. You know, that is where care happens, that interaction, right? So, but not just culture. I would say that, you know, culture doesn't put the bread, the food on the table. So, you know, if you want to show staff, and I'm sure that this is, you know, a, a, a material for maybe another podcast, but, um, you know, staff pays. We cannot continue to ignore that, you know, some of our most valued staff um, is having to make a decision whether to take care of the patient, turn them, do all the hard work and change them or go flip a burger and get paid maybe better, you know? So I think that that is an important thing that we will have to reckon with and, uh, and understand. But also, uh, you know, fostering the staff early. So having, you know, having an outreach to CNA schools and say, how can we allow your CNAs to come and get your hours in our nursing home? So that that fostering and that, uh, you know, bringing in of staff happens early um, as well. And oh, then protecting our staff. Yeah, creating relationships with the, the, the schools that are training them. Um, I, I think that is brilliant. I mean, I think that we are not we have not always been in that position where we were inviting a more um, CNH who are in training into our facilities. I've seen that shift and it is it is a wonderful thing. I just wonder, you know, in the last what we're seeing now um, um, with this latest surge, it wasn't just the CNAs, it was everyone who was calling out because of the transmission rate. So how do we, to, to a point that I think I cut you off when you were about to make, how do we protect the staff? Well, you know, it's, it's funny that most of our, I have also been paying attention to the communication that I have been, uh, you know, doing in the past. And how does it compare to the communication that is happening in the building, uh, you know, with, you know, after COVID happened? Because, you know, you realize very quickly, it takes the whole team. And I hate to give this example, but I always tell my staff, it's like we are a ship, um, hopefully not a cruise ship, but, <laughs> but, but we are a ship and we all work together. And if we are not all moving in the same direction, that ship is not going anywhere, you know? So 
Um, so it is so important. I realized that our communication before COVID happened was primarily to the, you know, and, and I thought I was a great medical director because our triad is very strong. So I have a triad of, you know, the administrator, the DON and the, and the medical director, and we make decisions together and we have very, um, you know, good, um, conversations about everything so that you know we are all we all feel satisfied that we are heard um so but then that that was the extent of the communication and what we realized what i realized very quickly is that communication needed to be transparent and all across the board when you only communicate with the leadership then they are the only people who are hearing you you know, and in situations like this, you can't, you can't, you know, there is that playing telephone, right? By the time a communication that you want to have with the CNA um, happens, if you do that trickle down communication, there is hardly anything that they get to hear. So I would say that one of the things that I would take forward is that town hall format of communication. So interestingly enough, when our numbers of staff uh, you know, uh, out, you know, getting, uh, being uh, sick with COVID increased. I'm like, okay, time for a town hall. And, uh, and, you know, I've been doing these town halls for almost two years now. Uh, and now most of the questions that I get are from the CNAs and it's incredible. And our CNAs are you know, are a group that is very, uh, you know, even without the mandates, um, they are very high um, percentage of vaccination rates in our CNAs. So protecting our CNAs means going and communicating to them directly and, uh, and then making sure that they are properly vaccinated. They have the PPE and advocating for them when they are having these, uh, you know, large number of patients uh, to, to care for as we are continuing on with the staffing shortages. And actually in that um, um, last town hall that I did, it is important for our CNAs to know that we value them as medical directors and call them out uh, as well. Of course, nursing as well and EVS professional, you know, they have been partners, you know, hand in hand. We have been doing this all together. And I think staff needs to know directly from the medical director how much they are valued. I th and I think it's interesting. You, you're, I've heard your analogy of a ship a couple of times. I always think of it as a, um, we're all a, a family and you, you're, you're just like a brother, sister, cousin, whatever you want to be in the family, but you can come to me, you could ask a question. I'm here. I'll give back. I, I'll ask you questions because I need you. And if I need you to be with me at the bedside, or if you're doing something and you're like, Hey, Dr. Sanders, I want, I want to know, you know, if there's a problem and I hear it from, directly from that CNA, I usually get the, the whole picture because they're at that person's bedside the most. So it is really, you know, whether we're on the ship or at a family reunion in the backyard, it's, it's really <laughs> great analogies. And I think, I think that helps when we're thinking about how to protect each other. I guess yeah. um, you, you brought up a point that I was thinking about too. We still see, we're still seeing very um, 
um, low rates of vaccination amongst our staff in Florida, better than it was maybe um, a few months ago, but even in getting their, them a booster shot. So as part of that infection control and getting to that new normal of always being ready, uh, how do we continue to, to educate, to, to let people know that the way to slow transmission is to make sure you're vaccinated and boosted? You know, how, do, how are you doing that? Um, multiple strategies, um, you know, uh, definitely doing town halls, continuing to do town halls. But, uh, you know, uh, I am not entirely sure what I was doing on one of the units um, that, uh, anyway, we were celebrating something. And it's important, I think, Diane, one of the things that I would say is it's very important to celebrate small wins. Um, because wins these days are small. <laughs> you know, so don't wait to celebrate. Because I think staff, um, staff needs that morale boost as much as we do uh, as well. And I think when you um, celebrate small wins with large number of people, those wins become big or, uh, or seem big, right? Um, so, you know, one, one thing more that I would say that I didn't mention about protecting the staff, um, keep your eyes open because this is something that I have seen and I am sure that I'm not the only one. Uh, staff has been working in that, you know, firefighting mode for almost, what, two years now. And you will start looking for signs of breakdown. When tempers run high in a in you know these are closed units. People have been working together for you know years and years, or maybe you have new staffing. These are high stress times. And one thing that I would really um, ask us to look into ourselves is when these situations arise. Hopefully, we are catching uh, staff stress levels prior to something breaking down. But when the staff gets upset with each other, these are this is the tip of the iceberg. Go to the source. The source is the amount of stress that every single staff member has been put through. The source is the circumstance that they have been put in. The source may not be the staff themselves. So don't be in a hurry. I think it's so important for us not to be in that blame mode and say, hey, you acted the way that you weren't supposed to act with your colleague, but you know, sit down or maybe proactively get your employee assistance program people come in uh, to kind of work with the staff or do activities together so that they find they can be shored up because they are out, they're out of their buffer zone. You're so right. I think that we need to be very sensitive and understand that that stressed out feeling can transform into feeling overwhelmed, which can transform into being burnt out, which then transforms into the breakdown. You know, it is like a, a, a cascade that that is occurring in all of us, in all of our lives. And I, I have um, advised people when someone was mad at someone, I'm like, you 
they, they are probably having a very tough day. And mm -hmm. the one thing you could say is just thank you. Thank you, because I am I'm truly grateful. You know, even if they still have a scowl on their face because they're still carrying around, I just want to extend as much gratitude as I can in those moments because I could not imagine at all what what um, anyone is going through if I if you know having to do all of that. And I told I was telling my my um, family and friends I'm like you have no idea how it feels to be underneath all of that PPE. It mm -hmm. is hot. It is, it, you're, you're, you're feeling short of breath in a N95 mask. And it is not easy to be in that for hours. We, it was never attended that way. Mm -hmm. Now, coming back to vaccination rates, the reason why I say that about staff as well is a stressed out staff is not going to be wanting to hear one more thing and your lecture on vaccine. So, you know, celebrating those wins, um, and then, you know, just going and talking to the staff and actually asking them, hey, did you take the booster? This is what I, this is actually what happened is, you know, we have been keeping up with patients, uh, you know, boosters and our patients are 100%, you know, whoever get, got the vaccine, uh, we have 100% booster rates on patients. Um, but staff, um, they were like, I have this going on. I don't, so, you know, I walk into the hall and I'm like, you know, I took the booster and this is what happened. And hey, did you guys take the booster? And um, actually there was a CNA who walked up to me and said, mm, I'm thinking of taking the booster. And then I walk, look around and I'm like, who all have taken the booster? And there's like one hand that went up and I'm like, let's have a booster party and uh, called the, um, called the uh, pharmacist and say, hey, can we open a vial and just uh, give boosters to everyone? <laughs> and we have that. So, you know, I think there is a lot of, you know, education, but also logistics and being, uh, making the boosters available where the staff is is such an important uh, part of that strategy because if you if you're not able to take advantage of that time frame that staff wants to do it and you know then then it it gets really hard but it is you know talking one on one you know like all these strategies that you know CDC and you know AHRQ have talked about but really it's that personal connection with the staff Mm -hmm. uh, it, that makes such a huge difference. So I want to, I, I thank you for all of that. And I want to ask, as, as we're thinking about, like, how do we track success in our process, the progress that we're making? Um, I want to ask before I let you go, what about access to um, monoclonal antibodies? What about access to the novel pharmaceuticals that are um, been recently approved? How are we bringing that into part of our action plan to always be ready? Yes, very good question again. I mean, you know, one of the things that we have still not talked about is your Department of Health. Um, um, Department of Public Health is going to know, you know, how much of what is available typically, because that is how, um, you know, uh, these uh, monoclonal antibodies, et cetera, are being sourced. Um, so it is so, so, so important for uh, facilities to actually have, you know, relationships with Department of Public Health. You know, in Georgia, we actually have a very good infection control team. 
who we can call anytime. So, you know, I really urge the facilities to actually give them a call and see what resources they can provide. That's number one. Number two, role of consultant pharmacist. They are amazing partners. And, you know, don't, don't go to the, you know, don't start digging a well when the house is getting burnt down. It is so important for us to create those channels of readiness that, that we can then utilize very quickly. Um, so, for example, if you need um, monoclonal antibody, uh, you know, for example, for us, we have to let them know by Wednesday if we have a need for monoclonal antibody. So uh, the facilities, for example, in Georgia, what they should do is look at their patient population, anticipate, you know, with the rates that you are getting of COVID in the patient population, anticipate how many patients you're going to have any given week and say, you know, we think 10% of our patients are unvaccinated or unvaccinated and or uh, of uh, poor immune status. And this is what our, about what our need is going to be and be on the readiness. Because if you already have a patient today who needs that, um, uh, either uh, PO, uh, you know, antiviral or monoclonal antibody, and now you're starting to make that channel, it's too late. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is so important for you to kind of figure out the logistics ahead of time and have that pathway ready. That happened with, and these are not new lessons. These, this happened with our um, uh, vaccines. It happened with our PPE, you know, to have that, uh, uh, to calculate our PPE need. Um, even I would say for testing, do the same. I mean, tests are going out like there is no tomorrow. Uh, look into your building, look at the number of tests, anticipate, 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 and create those channels of, you know, acquisition. That's what I would say. Well, Swati, I I thank you. I thank you for everything that you have given us, uh, every piece of information you have disseminated uh, uh, over these past two years. And every time we've asked you to come and talk, you are always willing. (laughs) I thank you for that. I I am taking away that we always need to be prepared. That is the new normal. Avoid trickle-down communication. Keep your eyes open to the stressors that your staff may be under and celebrate the small wins. I thank you and I thank you all for listening and we'll see you soon. Uh, It's such a great pleasure, Diane, to um, speak with you. Every time I um, talk to you, it's it's very fun. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you. Join AMDA and your colleagues in person at PALTC 22, AMDA's annual conference that's being held in Baltimore, Maryland, March 10th through 13th, 2022. Or, if you prefer a virtual option, you can attend digitally. There's a great program planned with lots of new content on COVID and other clinical and regulatory topics. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits, For certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's apex.paltc.org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.